Corinthians chapter 13 today. We've been in a series talking about kingdom values. And really the idea has been looking at the early church and some of the main things that you saw demonstrated in the early church. So we talked about grace. We talked about identity that we express in baptism. Uh, Last week, Brad talked with us about uh, the Word of God, did a great job, and the importance of the Word informing the church. And today, we're going to talk about love. So, if you're here with your sweetie, and you want to hold her hand, fellas, you just just go for it, okay? This This is your chance. If you don't have a sweetie, but you want the person next to you to be your sweetie, why not give it a shot, right? So, uh... We'll see what happens here, but no, just uh, just kidding a little bit. Um, <laughs> this could be awkward, ladies. I'm sorry. Um, no, I. I uh, this is really interesting for me to to kind of work through this idea of love in First Corinthians 13. So if you're brand new to the Bible, maybe you've never read the Bible before, but you've been to one wedding, you're probably familiar with this passage. All right, it is. It's kind of this classic wedding passage about love. It's this passage that that helps define um, what we think of when we think about Christian love and Christ-like love. And this is what's really interesting to me. On the one hand, everybody gets love. Like, we understand it, you know? It's kind of one of these things that you know it when you see it, right? Uh, Valentine's Day, um, holding hands. Maybe this is family. Maybe it's not been family for you. Uh, Maybe one day you hope to have a sweetie, right? (laughs) It's that kind of idea where we all sort of get it, And at the same time, none of us really get it. Like, all of us have questions. All of us are confused by love. All of us have a ways to go when it comes to being a really loving person. Part of the reason I know this is because um, in pastoral ministry, people come to you with questions, and like 95% of them have to do with love. Like, dating questions, uh, single people who want to get married, married people who want to be single, you got, you got people who uh, maybe they're talking with somebody and they don't know if this is actually dating because the man won't define it and they're confused and there's all these kind of deals that happen uh, on a regular basis and on top of that just past hurts, pain from past relationships or where you thought there was love and there wasn't, um, family members who you thought would love you and, and didn't. And there's just a lot of confusion, a lot of questions. And so we're going to look at what is the most in-depth treatment of love and Christ-like love in the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that love is crucial, it's practical, and it's eternal. Okay, crucial, practical, eternal, three things coming out of this passage. But before we get to that, we have to do a little bit of work on the context and understanding what is being said here. If you don't understand where a passage comes in an argument, in a, in a conversation, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, you can think one thing out of it, but it's actually maybe saying something different. So I'll just give you a really practical example of this passage. If I were going to write a poem about love, uh, a hymn perhaps about love, the context that I would do that would probably have something to do with romance, maybe marriage, maybe family. This passage is actually in the context of spiritual gifts. Isn't that kind of a weird place to have the largest extended treatment of love? Talking about like things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge and like all this stuff that's sort of freaky and, and kind of 
you know, gets into a lot of debate and discussion. And yet, that's exactly where the Apostle Paul uses this argument. And so here's basically, I'm going to give you just a little bit of context for what's going on here. The Apostle Paul has started a church in a city called Corinth, major city in that region. Uh, he was there for about a year and a half, and he left. And they have questions. If you're new to your faith, you probably have questions. I am old in the faith, and I still have lots of questions. This is just part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have questions. There are things that come up that you're not sure what to do with, you need some help. And so they're having correspondence back and forth. And this church is really a total mess. All right, you, you look at this, they've got divisions. They're arguing over who's the, the best preacher, and it's creating division uh, in the congregation. They have members of the church suing one another. Some guy is sleeping with his stepmom, and this is for them, like, like, look how tolerant we are. This guy is sleeping with his stepmom. Awesome. Look at us. Yay, us. And the Apostle Paul is writing to kind of correct this. And so what a typical gathering of this church looked like was that the wealthy people would show up early, they would bring the communion wine, they would drink all the communion wine, and then they would be drunk. And then the people who didn't have as much money would show up to the gathering thinking, we're going to have a communion meal, and everybody else is already drunk, and there's no more wine. That's an awkward experience, right? It's probably in a house. It's like you showed up to a dinner party, everybody's drunk, and now you're supposed to worship with This is weird. And then the tongues speaking would ensue. So they were very spiritual people, and then everybody would, would start speaking in tongues. Now, we're not going to get into too much of that because that's, you know, I don't want to deal with that this morning, but, um, but that's what's happening, right? So everybody's, so half of them are drunk, and everybody sounds like they're drunk, and there's this weird environment that's sort of going on, and then every once in a while, somebody would pop up and start just telling them what God has said to them. You know, they'd have these moments where, where Here's, here's Ben, and Ben has something to share, and he would start to share it. But before he gets done, Matt stands up. He has something better to share, and it might contradict Ben. And he would start sharing it over Ben so as to make a stronger point. And this is what church was like, all right? If, uh, if you're new here, that's not what our goal is, okay? Like, that's weird. It is awkward. And the Apostle Paul is writing to correct this. And so if you actually look at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, Now concerning spiritual gift, gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. So he's like, this stuff you're doing, we have to have a conversation about it. This is weird. It's uncomfortable. Let's talk about it. And so he uses chapter 12 to communicate basically two things. One, when the presence of the Spirit is among God's people, there should be unity. And the way you experience that unity is through the diversity of the gifts present. So we're not trying to outdo one another. Everybody has a part to play. We're here to encourage one another. It's not just one person's gifts. It's a lot of gifts. And that we're all built up as those things work together. Then he jumps down, if you look down in uh, verse 31 of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. He says, so higher gifts for Paul is more encouraging stuff. And I will show you still a more excellent way. And then he jumps into chapter 13. So the more excellent way for him is love. There's this contrast between the spiritual gifts that, they're, that they think are what is most important, and then love, which Paul says is actually most important. And then, at the end of this, in chapter 14, he jumps back into the tongues and prophecy stuff. Because his point here is not, you should never have an experience of the Spirit. His point is, you need to have a rightly ordered congregation where the unity of the Spirit is expressed and experienced through diversity. And the primary way that happens is when we love one another. 
And that's what we're going to see here, is that when the church of Christ, when the body, when we love one another, that's actually what people are hungry for. People aren't hungry for the perfect speaker or the perfect band, although the band, great job. That was great. Fantastic, guys. It's the first time we've had like a drum kit. James is like killing it over there. That's awesome. Um, and uh, so, so that's, but that's not the point, right? It's actually the love. It's the family. It's, it's people who were not friends, people who were not family, who have been brought together by Jesus through his love and are now building one another up toward looking more like Jesus. That's the point. So we're going to look at what that looks like here. Chapter 13, uh, verse 1 is where I will start. And we'll go 1 through 3 here, looking at love is crucial. Christ-like love is crucial. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging clanging cymbal. This is not just a metaphor he pulled out of air. This is referencing the, the tongue speaking that was happening in their congregation. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I'm a miracle worker, but I have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So you, you get this. He's talking about these different gifts that people have. And he's saying, hey, that gift you have, it's really good, but if you're unloving, it doesn't matter. That's great that you're really intelligent. That's great that you've got a PhD. That's great that you can help somebody understand the wisdom and the insight of God from the Scriptures. But if you don't love people, who cares? It's possible, even with this giving your body up to be burned, that it's possible that he's thinking back to this story in the book of Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, which is really fun to say, you know. And it's a story of these three young men who are in this foreign land and they're being forced to bow down to this king and treat him as God. And he says, we're not going to do it. And so he throws them into the furnace, expecting them to die. But instead, they're walking around and there's this fourth person in there that people speculate might have been Jesus, might have been you know, an angel, we don't really know. But they were faithful in the midst of all this persecution. And he goes, if we have that kind of faithfulness, we don't have love, we're worth nothing. And he's encouraging them with this. He's reorienting them with this. This is a really important thing for Americans to remember. Man, we love performance in America. All we do is win, 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 win. We love it. We love to see people's gifts on display. We love to exalt the person with the particular strength. And we love to, to follow those people. This is what social media is about. How many people are, are watching my posts? How many likes did I get? It's all this performance-driven mentality. And what the Apostle Paul here is warning them is do not let your gifts outrun your love. If the, the platform you've been given is bigger than the, the love in your heart, you don't actually have a Christ-like love. It's devastating that this is actually not the norm in church. Like most of American church, this is not the way we typically do this. We so much love giftedness over character. And the evidence for this is that right now we are seeing moral failure after moral failure after moral failure all across the board. And it's devastating. I guess one thing, if you find out that your boss at work 
has like a double life going on. That's upsetting, frustrating, but you can still make a phone call and sell a software product. It is devastating when you find out somebody that you are committed to and trusted in the congregation, whether that's a pastor, whether that's just a friend, is living another life. And instead of loving the people around them, they would much rather perform for you, put the mask up, and then be a different person inside. I think that the Apostle Paul would call us to care more about our character than we do our reputation. Your reputation is what people say about you when nobody else is there. Your character is who you are when nobody else is there. You actually can't do anything about your reputation to a certain extent. You actually can't change how that looks. People are going to think about you what they will. But you can follow Jesus and pursue a loving character with all parts of your life. That's what it means to have integrity. It's like the whole thing is unified. It's, it's connected. And the Apostle Paul here is telling them, if, if you show up on Sunday morning and you spoke in tongues and everybody was amazed by this incredible spiritual experience you had here, but you have a totally different life Monday through Saturday, you are not what we're looking for. That's not it. We don't want to follow that. Instead, pursue character. Pursue love. Don't worry about your reputation. Just think about Jesus. This is the most loving person. Pristine character. And the crowds that loved him turned into mobs that crucified him. Like that. And he didn't reject them. He forgave them. Because he was defined by love. First of all, love is more important. It's crucial. Second thing, love is also practical. Read with me in verses 4 through 8, 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's just great. That's like, put it on a coffee card, right? Or coffee card. Greeting card or coffee cup or both. <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> this is a great picture of love, right? Here's what's interesting. There's several things interesting actually about this. Um, these are 15 verbs. That's what that is. For us, it almost looks like, it can, you could think of these as attributes of love. Love kind of looks like this. But actually, these are all action words. This is about what love does, not what it is necessarily. He's not trying to define love. We sort of know what it is already. The scriptures have given us a ton of information about love. We're told to love one another like 13 times that exact phrase. Love one another. Okay, we get it over and over again. Jesus, when he's asked, what's the most important command? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, says, I'm giving you a new command. What's that new command? Love one another. That's the same command. <laughs> it's, it's like it's the exact same. You read the Apostle Paul's letters. The first half, he's like, look at Jesus, who loves you? The second half, he's like, you should love other people too. That's it. Over and over and over and over and over and over. That's it. That's all we got. We're just love. He's not trying to define it here. What he's trying to do is draw their attention and ask them, are you really loving people in a Christ-like way? The scholars have actually pointed out, it's interesting, 
this word here, this word for love, agape, um, it's almost like the kind of love that's unconditional and always demonstrated. It's an action-oriented kind of love. It's not just a feeling. It's not just the butterflies in your stomach. Like, that's fine, you can have that, but that's not actually what this is. The New Testament has four different words for love. There's like phileo, which is kind of brotherly love. Storge, which is like familial, you know, loose-fitting pants, watching TV on the couch love. There's like, there's eros, which is that romantic love. Then there's agape, which is this Christ-like, committed, faithful, unconditional love. That's actually the kind of love that we're all called to love others with. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been commanded, love others that way. What's that look like? So John Piper kind of broke this down in a really helpful way. Um, he says basically there's two big buckets here. There's a couple like outliers, but mostly two big buckets in terms of these descriptions. One is endurance. It's an enduring love. And the second would be humble, humility. It's a humble love. So I'll, I'll show you what I mean here. Look here at the beginning. Love is patient. That's having to do with endurance. Patient. So literally the word means long-suffering. I was talking to a friend the other day about patience and just asked, how, what's the difference between patience and passivity? You know, because it's like, are you just being patient or are you passive? And his answer was, if you feel like you're asking that question, it probably means you're just starting to be patient. <laughs> like, that's what patience means. It's long-suffering. It suffers a long time to love people. That's what it means. If you jump down to the end of it, there's four more that kind of fall in this endurance bucket. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All of them. The word in, in the Greek actually is really interesting here. It means all things. That's it. Not some. Not most. All. That's really hard. Isn't that really hard? Because there's some things I do not want to hope. There's some things I do not want to continue to believe. There's some things when you, man, that, that just that little pet peeve that my roommate did one more time, I am ready just to get rid of them. <laughs> you know? Like, I signed the lease. I can just kick them out. I have that, that power, right? You didn't do your dishes for nine months. Let's just get rid of you. <laughs> but that's actually not the picture. The picture is not most things. All things. And that one thing that you want to say, all things except this, though, right? That's the one place that actually exposes where you're not loving. That's right. Tough word here. It's not just an enduring love. It's also a humble love. Look at these. Love does not... Uh, it, it's kind. So kind is the one that sort of like doesn't fit necessarily a category here. It's just... When you're loving somebody, like, you're kind to them. That makes sense, right? That wasn't actually the case for most of the Corinthians. They weren't always kind to one another, and, but that's what it means. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. So arrogant, like, it's not puffed up. You know, you know that some of those people that you're like, I'm amazed you fit through that door because you are so full of hot air. Like, those, like that's, that is not the, the picture here. You, it is a loving... Um, um, humble, it's not puffed up, it's not rude. So rude has the connotation, not of um, you never offend people, because you can always offend people, but there's a, there's a humility when you approach somebody that is like thinking about them 
is not brash and, and arrogant and rude, thinking I'm just going to talk however I want to talk, and you know, if, it doesn't, if they don't like it, oh well. No, it's, it's, it's not losing yourself, but it's also caring for the other person. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Irritable has this connotation of being sharp. You know, like some of those people that are just prickly, you know what I'm talking about? You, you do, because you are too sometimes, all right? <laughs> it's like, um, my wife can attest. Every once in a while, I'm just a little prickly, you know? And it's just kind of this, this piece when you're not loving, that when somebody comes at you, it's almost like if they were a balloon, they would have popped. It's, you're just a little, little sharp. And the idea of resentful literally is, keeps no records of wrongs. So it's, it's almost like in a business, you know, you have a bookkeeper who's got these accounts, and every time money comes in or money goes out, you're recording that, and you're making sure that it balances at the end. That's great for a business. You want your books to balance. But if you approach your relationship that way, you are not loving. If you're recording every time somebody wrongs you, and every nice thing that you do for them, and you're trying to keep score, make sure it all balances out at the end, you're shipwrecking it. <laughs> I promise. That love doesn't do that. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is an interesting pairing. Craig Blomberg, who's a scholar, he's actually, I think, at Densim, but he wrote that um, the weird thing about this phrase is that when you think about the opposite of truth, it's not usually wrongdoing. It's lies. It's falsehood. So, but, but Paul's making this parallelism saying he doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but in the truth. Because your right beliefs have to produce right action. Those two things are totally connected. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy go hand in hand. If you feel like I'm doing all the right things, but I believe the wrong things, you're not actually doing the right things. If you're, if you're doing the wrong things, I think I'm getting myself confused. You get the picture though, right? Verse 7 Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's kind of heavy, isn't it? You look at it and it's like, oh yes, that's how I want to be loved. But if you start to think about like the difficult moments in your life and going, that's how I want to love them. But like, oh gosh, that's painful. I think that loving somebody with a Christ-like love is actually the most vulnerable thing you can do. We, uh, we, as a society, love the word vulnerability, right? We love this. I, I want friends that are really vulnerable with me. And uh, I heard a great definition the other day uh, from Aaron Reedus that was vulnerability means telling people bad things about yourself. <laughs> like, that's kind, of, that's kind of what we mean sometimes, right? It's like, oh, yeah, and yeah, I just, I have these bad thoughts. I don't know. It's like, oh, he's so vulnerable. And there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a piece of that where we're actually sharing the truth and letting the truth out of your life in a way that people can see it and know it, and then say either that's good or bad, that is really vulnerable, right? That's, that's, a, that's a really vulnerable, because you're actually opening yourself up to be judged, potentially. Like somebody could tell you, yeah, that's wrong. You need to change that. I don't like that. Somebody could actually leave. They could say, uh, that's, that's too rough. I don't think we can be friends anymore. So there is a vulnerability there. What's even more vulnerable is to love people no matter what stuff they bring to you is to choose to believe all things when that roommate of yours just totally broke your trust. It's choosing to love somebody through the most difficult things you've ever been through in your life. It's choosing to say, I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm going to let go of that, even though it devastated me. 
I don't think I have to give a lot of examples because all of us have been there. We all know what it feels like. You're thinking about some of those examples right now in your mind. That's the way Christ has actually loved you. Whatever you think has been done to you, I promise you, you've done worse to Jesus. And yet he still loves you. So Paul's point here is that if God made himself so vulnerable to actually come to earth and allow his creation to kill him because he loved them, how much more should we be people who love others that way? Isn't that tough? And the things that go through my mind are like, but that might hurt. Like, I've got to protect myself here, right? He actually addresses this earlier in, in chapter 6. Uh, I, I won't turn there, but he basically says this. You're trying to sue each other so that you don't take a financial hit? He said, just take the hit. What's wrong if you, if you suffer for loving somebody? That's part of it. It just comes with the territory. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just allow some wrong to be done to you. Now here's where we are in the argument. Paul says, your gifts are great, but they don't matter unless you're loving. And then he goes, here's 15 things love does. And by the end of this, the Corinthians are sitting here with the weight of realizing, oh man, <laughs> we haven't done this at all, right? It's like, he doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing but the truth. It's like, man, we were actually celebrating this dude sleeping with his stepmom uh, at the testimony time on Sunday. That's probably not what Paul's talking about. You know, like, we're keeping an account because we're taking them to court. We're arguing with one another. We're fighting over who's a better preacher and who we should follow. Maybe we're not loving. What do we do then? Well, the good news is that love is eternal. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. If you feel like you've missed it, you haven't. If you're still breathing, you can still love. If you haven't experienced love yet, you can still experience love. And now he gives this really interesting uh, passage here. What he's basically doing is saying the gifts that you so value are one day going to fade away. But love will only get stronger and stronger and stronger. Okay, look, look at how he says this. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for, for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he's saying that there's this day of perfection coming that when it's here, you won't need somebody to go, hey, I think God's saying this for us. Because you'll know exactly what God's saying. He's saying you won't need somebody to speak in this weird language because you're going to be with God. You're not going to need that. But there's a day coming where those things won't matter anymore, but love will still matter. There's been a lot of debate about this, by the way. This is just a quick sidebar. I'm not going to get into all the details, but there's basically two camps that fight a lot over whether or not these gifts that he's talking about are still active today. And then that can be phrased a lot of different ways, and we could spend like hours talking about it if you want to. We can. But... Um, not right now, okay? So the, the basic idea here, though, is I would just say this. To me, this doesn't feel like the Apostle Paul is trying to tell people whether or not tongues is still going to happen in 2020 at a Pentecostal church. I don't feel like that's what his main point here is. I think his main point here is that love is way more important than those gifts, 
that, that you're experiencing right now in love, love's actually more important. And he gives like these three kind of um, metaphors to help it further explain this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So he's saying there's going to be a day where, where the gifts are kind of like acting like a child because you don't fully understand, but one day you're going to be a man or a woman and you're going to understand and you're not going to need what you needed as a child. Uh, verse 12, for now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So mirrors at this time were not like polished you know, glass like we have uh, in the lovely bathrooms of the Evanston Center. No, it's not like that at all. It, it, was, it was kind of dim uh, uh, metal that they would do their best to publish, or to publish, to polish up. I am struggling with this sentence. Okay, they would polish this me- metal, but you would always sort of dimly see. It was never a perfect reflection. It was always kind of there, but not quite. And he's saying, that's how we see God right now, but at that day, we're going to see him like face to face. Like we're standing in the same room and we're going to understand it all. And then now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. That one day we're going to know God the way God knows us, which is a crazy statement. That we're actually going to be in his presence and and see him there. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So he comes back to the end. He goes, gifts are going to pass away. What's most important is love won't. And then in verse 14, on his way back into the gifts... He says this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that she may prophesy. So notice the the way he is trying to draw this really clear and yet sort of subtle differentiation. He's not trying to say, you don't want any experience of God. Love the gifts. Enjoy the gifts. Enjoy the experience of God amongst you. Love is just so much more important. And here's why. Because if God is love, that when we see God, then love is what our existence is going to be. There's this reality that there's one who has loved you deeply, deeply enough to give his life for you, though you did not deserve it. The scriptures tell you that while we were enemies with God, he gave himself for us. While you were his enemy. And Paul here is telling the Corinthians, that's what you should pursue. Because a billion years from now, that's what you're going to be enjoying. It's that love of Christ. Don't get sidetracked so much by the the minor things that you're fighting over and you're so obsessed with. Focus on the majors. Love. That's why Jesus tells His disciples, the world will know you're My disciples by your love one for another. Because He has so deeply loved us. What would it look like if we were defined by this kind of Christ-like love? I've got one story and then just a couple questions for you. Um, there are things, I think, that all of us have a heritage of. So your parents, your grandparents, even if you didn't know your parents, there are things in your past that still affect you today. Some of those are really good. Some of those are not good. And... I would actually say that I have a heritage that I did nothing to earn, but um, that there is a Christ-like love that's been demonstrated and passed down through my family. So I want to tell you about my grandfather. Uh, My grandfather, Gramps, uh, Ross Anderson, was uh, grew up in a little town and fell in love with my grandmother, I think, when they were in second grade. He... uh, 
there were only like, I think like nine girls in second grade with him. It was this tiny little town in Kansas. And so, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of choice, but man, they just loved each other, right? High school sweethearts. Uh, World War II breaks out and he is enlisted, uh, wanted to be a fighter pilot, didn't get to, but he was a co-pilot of a B-24 bomber. Um, and he was deployed overseas uh, while my grandmother was, was back in, I think, Tulsa. Um, and uh, while he was overseas, he was actually, they were flying these um, like uh, night missions. He and this crew of seven guys were on a stripped down B-24 that was like painted black and they would uh, fly into enemy territory trying to not be seen or heard or noticed to drop supplies off. And so right near the end of the war, uh, they were out doing that. They were attacked by an enemy fighter, shot them down. All the guys bailed out and landed somewhere in what's now the Czech Republic. Uh, in an occupied area, and the villagers found these seven airmen and hid them for like three months, and hid them from the enemy, and cared for them, loved them, protected them. Uh, it was kind of interesting, a few years ago, they, they uh, like commemorated it with this memorial, and I saw a video, it was in Czech, so I didn't understand what they were saying, but uh, pretty cool, you know? And, and so, this great story, my grandmother didn't have any idea where he is for months, you know? They, they, there's no... Facebook Messenger, like she just doesn't know, and and she continues to believe he's coming back. I'm I'm trusting God, and he ends up coming back. Uh, they get married, have three kids. The youngest one was my dad. Um, life was pretty good. Late 80s, my uncle passed away from lung cancer, uh, pretty young, and my grandmother had onset Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's, and so um, I have very few memories actually of her when she can carry on a conversation. It, it hit her really fast, hit her really hard. Um, pretty devastating. And for the better part of a decade, my grandfather continued to care for her faithfully, um, doing whatever it took to love her, to serve her, to keep her in the best health possible. And so that meant for a while that was in Tulsa. Eventually, her needs got so bad that he couldn't do it on his own anymore, and so he moved to Edmond, where my family was, which is about an hour and a half away, and they hired an in-home nurse who came along every day to help, help her get up, get changed, um, all those things um, that were so necessary, and um, all the while, we're seeing my grandfather's health decline, decline, decline. He wasn't an old man, but he, um, he was, he was uh, not doing super well. And the whole family's trying to get him to put her in an assisted living, you know. Like, Ross, man, you gotta, you got to put her in a home. You can't do this. And his brother called one day. And he just said, I think it was his brother. Um, somebody called him and said, Ross, why are you doing this? You're going to kill yourself doing this. He goes, I made a promise. How could I abandon that? And he said, so he, he kept her until the doctor told him that he had to put her in a home. He's like, you can't care for her anymore. They actually told him that it was the best cared for Alzheimer's case they'd seen at home. But he just couldn't do it anymore. So he contacted an assisted living and, um, or a nursing facility, something, and, and got everything prepared, got her bags packed, everything was ready to go. Uh, the morning that they came to pick her up, he sat down in his easy chair and passed away. I think he just was not going to do it. <laughs> So I look at that and I go, how much more is the love of Christ for us? 
who he literally gave his life for us. And how hard is it still to be that same kind of people who love sacrificially no matter what the cost? Two questions for you. Do you understand the love that Jesus has for you? There are days when I know it, you know, like I would agree, Jesus loves me. I get that. The Bible told me so. I've known this for years. But then I forget, man, he gave everything for me. If you're not a Christian in here, we want you to trust Christ. He loves you. This is not for us. It's not like, hey, we get a notch in the belt because you became a Christian. This is, there is the God of the universe who loved you, created you, has been thinking about you before time began, who came into this world and lived a life you should have lived, died the death you deserved, and rose again so that you could have his life. He loves you that much. Come to him. Come to him. You can do that today. I would love to talk with you about what that looks like. Believers, the same question is for you. Do you understand how deeply loved you are? It should change everything about us. Everything about us. Second, if you're a believer in here and you've been loved like that, is it flowing out of you? I think that's why Paul includes this here when he's writing to the Corinthians. They knew what love was. They knew it. They agreed. Oh yeah, we know. We get it. Christ died for us. They all believed this. And yet there was a deficiency between the way they were living and the way Christ loved them. It's difficult. Some of us have people in our lives that are just kind of hard to love this way. I get it. I mean, nobody in this room, of course, you know. But Here's what I think practically, okay? So this doesn't mean that you have to give your life for the people in this room the way my grandfather did, my grandmother. But I think there is a certain degree where we can say, I'm going to selflessly love the person in front of me no matter the cost right now, no matter the awkwardness of this conversation, no matter whether we have the same interests or totally, radically, completely different interests. You can actually care for the person right in front of you. That means in community group, when somebody brings up a topic that, that you're like, I do not care about this at all, instead of just telling them that and walking away, you can, you can actually just love them, right? This doesn't mean you have to be besties with everybody. Okay, we all go through seasons of life where things change. You know, at some point, hopefully some of you guys start dating somebody and it works out and you get married and you have kids and you're not just hanging out with people at the climbing gym the same way you used to, okay? Otherwise, your marriage is not going to go well. I'm just going to encourage you that, okay? Um, like, 
Oh, that's funny. That was actually not direct. Anyways, okay. <laughs> this doesn't mean that you have to be besties with everybody. But what it does mean is, are you being filled with the love of Jesus? And is your primary interaction not driven by, what can I get from this person? But how can I show them the love I've been shown? The opposite of Christ-like love is not hatred, it's consumerism. Where everything becomes about what can I get? Here's the really good news. If you're in Christ, you have a perfect love. You don't need any more. And it frees you up to love the people around you extravagantly. Let's be people who do that. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you have loved us this way. Thank you that we don't have to make up a definition of love. Thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you that we've received it. Right now, as we take some time to respond, Father, I pray that you would speak to each person in here. I pray we would actually encounter you through worship, that as we encounter you, we would be changed, be more like Christ. In Jesus' name.